Hi, and Happy New Year, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with our Horn of Africa director and my boss, Marithi Mutiga. Marithi is on the podcast to do a look ahead of what we should be watching in the Horn of Africa region during 2021. He did this last year, and we're super happy to have him back. Marithi, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alan. Happy New Year. Now, it's hard this year to know exactly where to start in the horn. A lot has happened in the last year, and we have a lot to look forward to in the next year. So let's start with Ethiopia, for no other reason that it's the region's hegemon. And of course, there's so much going on there right now. We have the war in Tigray. Besides that, elections are due this year, and the overall context, of course, being the overall political transition under the rule of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Is this the year, 2021, uh, where we answer sort of the big question on is this transition heading in a, in a positive direction? Is it working? First, of course, we have to reflect on the awful cost of this war. Thousands killed. We now know 2 million displaced, including 50,000 that have fled across the border into Sudan. And just as importantly, the conflict has seriously strained communal ties between people that have lived together as neighbors for decades. I think fundamentally the trouble with Ethiopia is its political culture. And it's good some Ethiopian elites are reflecting on this in the wake of the conflict. And that might help answer your question about what we should expect in this coming year. There is historically among Ethiopian leaders a culture of domination and no real tradition of accommodation of opponents. If you look across the past century, every leader has tended to come to power quite young and to seek to consolidate authority, especially after transition, by force of arms. This is quite regrettable because the cost is very high. You'd have hoped this transition would have been different given all the optimism at the beginning, but I think there were key missed opportunities early on. Some might find this controversial given the divisions over the record of the TPLF, the Tigri People's Liberation Front, uh, in power. But I think the first thing to note is that Ethiopian elites did not give the party enough credit for ceding power relatively peacefully and gracefully early on in 2018 after a campaign of protests. As we know, revolutionary parties on the continent generally don't surrender power easily. But the TPLF showed considerable maturity at that point because they could easily have fought to the bitter end, which would have been very destabilizing. So it, then it was a mistake that Addis Ababa demonized Tigray's regional party so much, did not seek to accommodate them, and they felt alienated and backed into a corner. The TPLF also made major mistakes. I think the most important is that they badly overestimated their capacity, perhaps believed their own myth of in invincibility too much, and if Addis is to be believed, they've behaved over the last couple of years in a way that was designed to make the transition fail. Now here we are, a giant mess which was caused by a failure of politics. But the case I would like to make is that what comes next will still be determined by politics. It's very likely an insurgency will develop and the question is what the scale and intensity will be and we'll know the answer in the next two or three months. I think much will rest on the way the federal forces and especially the Amhara militia that fought alongside them conduct themselves in Tigray. We also know that there have been credible reports that Eritrean troops 
fought alongside uh, the Ethiopian army and they've been accused of widespread atrocities. It really is absolutely essential that this withdraw from the area rapidly to avoid further inflaming Tigrayan sentiment. Second, the question of offering supplies to vulnerable people is critical. I mentioned at the top 2.2 million displaced Already, even before the conflict, 1.6 million depended on food aid. Those needs will be greater now. It's really essential that Addis cooperates with the UN and aid agencies and ensures all these are reached very rapidly. I think that it's encouraging that the authorities are saying they're keen to work with the existing local administration where those are willing. It won't be easy if the Tigrayan people continue to perceive the war as being waged against them as a collective. Overall, of course, the point we've been making at Crisis Group is that the political crisis in Ethiopia cannot be resolved on the battlefield. We know elections are due in June, as you mentioned. Um, I think the key thing to make sure that vote succeeds is that Prime Minister Abiy really must call for genuine broad-based dialogue with all political actors, initially on the question of how to hold those elections in a way that they are viewed as credible, but later also on the wider schisms that divide Ethiopia's elite. And then the impact and fallout of this on the broader region, you know, obviously our concerns are not just with Ethiopia, but also on the impact that any sort of instability in Ethiopia and any just changes in Ethiopia have had on the on the broader regional question. Um, and we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. But what are the major things we're looking forward going ahead into this new year? Of course, we had Eritrea pulled into the conflict. We already have ongoing skirmishes on the Sudan-Ethiopia border that are quite alarming. So what are we really looking for moving ahead, you know, on the impact of Ethiopia on the broader region? I think the impact uh, of the Ethiopia-Sudan border clashes are very significant. Sudan has loomed large in every modern conflict in northern Ethiopia, and this is unlikely to be different. It's not a conflict Sudan wanted at all, much less needed, and Khartoum was one of those which tried hard to convince the parties not to go to war. The question is what Sudan's attitude will be now, and that's a very difficult one because the key thing about the Sudanese is that they tend to be masters of ambiguity. They rarely cast their lot with you fully. Um, the key worry in Ethiopia is that in Sudan's current weak economic position, it has become very vulnerable to external influence. Ethiopian state media for weeks now has been pointing the finger of blame for inciting the clashes at Cairo. Cairo, of course, will deny this, but this shows how things can easily be regionalized. In terms of the specifics of the conflict, this is one that goes back many years to the early part of the last century. But the immediate backdrop is that in the mid-90s, there was an assassination attempt against Hosni Mubarak as he attended an AU summit in Addis. Both Egypt and Ethiopia blamed an Islamist militia, which they said was supported by Khartoum. And as punishment or retaliation, the Ethiopian army sent its troops into this area, and in their wake, thousands of Ethiopian farmers settled into this contested territory. So to Sudan generally will feel it has a legitimate claim to the land, but the Ethiopians contend Khartoum could have handled this differently. The bottom line, though, is that the region can't afford another interstate border war and one hopes that wisdom will prevail and the two sides will talk rather than engage in combat. There'll be a few other elements and it's important that you mention the Eritrea question. 
Asmara will certainly not be resting easy now. The consequence of this latest war from everything we hear is that the TPLF may focus its insurgency as much on Eritrea, with which it shares a border, than on Ethiopia, given that it is currently disillusioned with Ethiopia and sees more of a future for itself in its immediate neighborhood. This may have implications for others, including the Afar region, which is also in the neighborhood, demographically stretches into Djibouti, and Djibouti will anxiously seek to avoid being drawn in. Again, these are scenarios I have to emphasize, rather than predictions, and much depends on how Addis behaves and it, whether it can limit the fallout in Tigray. More widely, we see that Somalia has already been affected. The withdrawal of Ethiopian troops there could not have come at a more fragile situation with the country heading into elections. Uh, and Kenya is in an interesting position. It has just joined the Security Council and there'll be tough choices to make there when, as the Europeans have tried uh, to bring the issue of Ethiopia up at the council, Kenya will have to tread carefully, you know, in terms of preserving its relations with Addis and also engaging at the council. Um, we've not mentioned yet the uh, struggle in Oromia. There's a substantial rebellion there. Whether the way that evolves will depend a lot on whether Abi can fashion some sort of uh, consensus with the Oromo elite. If that happens, the rebellion might subside. It might not be as serious a threat as it is currently. But if not, this will continue. It might become more serious and that will worry neighbors such as Kenya, which share a long border along which the Oromo rebels have long retreated into. So on the Eritrea question, just briefly... Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about how a lot of this has played into President Isaias uh, Freki's hand, the war in Tigray, that is. Do we see that being true, that all these events in Ethiopia are, are strengthening Isaias and his role in the region? Isaias fancies himself as a bit of a philosopher king. He sees his role in the region as bigger than Eritrea, and he seeks to uh, export a fairly intolerant authoritarian model of governance, which he, said, he says is best suited for the region. I think for now, he will see himself as having acquired a short-term victory. I would not rest so easy if I were him. He has... Um, basically made almost the raison d'etre of his rule, the removal of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which he blamed for Eritrea's isolation and many of its internal problems. Now, there are questions within Eritrea we hear among even those within his circle about whether he has served his purpose, whether now that the TPLF is formally out of power, they still need a man that has kept the country so isolated, its economy so weak, it has ended up being depopulated with every young person seeking to live. And I think Isaiah might face challenges both internally, he might face challenges from the TPLF and also with the increasing outcry about alleged Eritrean abuses in, in Tigray. It's very possible that Abi might seek to seek some distance with Isaiah's. Again, these are not predictions. They're all scenarios, but war is very unpredictable. It's always much easier, easier to start it than to end it. Now let's move to Sudan because... <laughs> We still have a lot to cover in the horn during this podcast. And Sudan's another case where we've just had so much happen uh, in the past year and so much to look forward uh, ahead to and sort of analyze. So, you know, in the past year, you've had the Juba peace deal. 
uh, signed between Khartoum and, and, and several of the armed groups as part of the political transition. And the sort of transition overall, I think, has, you know, remained sort of hotly contested between the, the military and the civilian and different components within each of those. Um, you also, I should say, had the death of longtime former prime minister and longtime then opposition leader, Sadiq al-Mahdi. So it was an eventful 2020. We're now almost two years from the fall of Bashir from power, more than a year after the start of the transitional government. Do we have enough water under under the bridge, so to speak, to say whether or not this transition's sort of working for Sudan? Of course, Sudan was always going to have challenges, but but can we say what direction it's heading yet? I think the situation in Sudan, especially internally, is one where there's rare room for optimism. I know this is still very fragile and a major shock can easily send the transition crumbling. But you have to give credit to the Sudanese people and their elite because they've shown a pragmatic streak over the last two years and a capacity for day-to-day collaboration that is really admirable. It's a display of politics based on bargaining and concessions from which the region has much to learn. You mentioned Sadiq al-Mahdi sadly departed, again a very divisive figure. I happen to have met him mid last year at, at his home, very simple guy, but he was utterly pragmatic, very, very non-dogmatic in the way he saw the conflict in Sudan and how the transition might be steered uh, into a more steady um, direction. That's not to say there are no challenges. The economy is still in deep trouble and we continue to see fragmentation within and between factions. It's worth pointing out that suspicions between the military and the powerful rapid support forces militia in particular run higher now than before. On the other hand, the civilian opposition in great Sudanese political tradition, the forces for freedom and change uh, has basically fractured beyond all recognition and new alliances are emerging. We hear that there will soon be a reshuffle. You mentioned the Juba peace deal. Some of the armed group's representatives might be brought into the cabinet and some of this might tilt the balance perhaps in favor of the security forces. I think in 2021, the man to watch will be Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdok. He's in a very interesting position. He has no real elite constituency and draws all his power from the strong admiration the Sudanese people have for him and their conviction that he means well for the country while surrounded by self-interested sharks. They call him Miskina Hamdok on the streets, you know, poor Hamdok. But I think this is the year when Hamdok must really come into his own. Last year, the street was running out of patience with him, the economy spiraling downwards, many hours of blackouts, shortages of fuel and bread. And so the conditions generally now look a little more positive. Um, you know, the, the, the lifting of the state sponsor of terrorism designation could not have come at a better time for him, handled very clumsily by the U.S. for their own self-interested reasons, but still a real boost for him. What I would say is perhaps he should listen to the counsel of those say, that say he should be less of a conciliator now and more of a leader. Amid all this fracturing among the armed forces, among the, the civilians, he can perhaps come out of his shell, implement reforms that can take the country forward because ultimately people will want to see results. They'll want to see the currency stabilizing. They'll want to see improvements in their lives. He will need to keep expectations in check because we've seen sanctions lifted before and nothing really changed immediately. But perhaps with the Biden administration coming in, perhaps with the Gulf dispute starting to calm down, the conditions have never been better. For a leader with 
popular support like Hamdok to assert himself and at least implement change that makes it more likely you can have a smooth transition eventually to the civilians. Okay, now we're going to take another strong pivot and turn towards Somalia. Obviously, Somalia is, you know, already sort of moving its way through these very contested elections. And, you know, there's kind of an overall question over all of this of whether or not this is the sort of usual political dance that that happens as part of Somali politics when the elections come up, or if this is a, a unique crisis and one that, you know, as some have suggested, should be causing a lot of major alarm. You know, what are you looking for on that front um, as to whether or not this is sort of part of the normal that Somalia is likely to sort of uh, navigate its, its way through, although choppily, or, or whether or not um, this is something of, of a different magnitude of concern? The situation is indeed very delicately poised at the moment. The key thing about Somalia is that they have an informal style of power sharing, which means that no leader ever gets re-elected. And implicit in this is that elites from various communities get to enjoy command power at various points, which, which itself is quite stabilizing. President Farmaggio is determined to back this trend. He's being urged on particularly by Eritrea and to a lesser extent Ethiopia. Well, it's it's very worrying at the moment because the opposition, which is not really united ideologically, has rallied on that one issue, that a Farmaggio re-election is unacceptable to them. Hanging over all this, we hear that parliament may endorse a long postponement of the election, something which the opposition will reject vigorously. All these are worrisome trends. You are right to note that some say that um, uh, it's possible this is all performative, that at some point they might uh, achieve a deal. But there are also those that worry that the risk of a return to street fighting is higher than it has been for 15 years. And one hopes that the various parties can eventually reach a compromise. In terms of what comes next, predictions are in the horn or a mug's game, but I would urge you to keep your eyes open to the possibility that an outsider may come from nowhere to win. Nobody expected Farmajo last time. Nobody in 2012 saw Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud coming, so there is a possibility that the key power brokers here may pull a surprise and advance a compromise candidate. I think more importantly, Somalia's elite, whether Farmajo comes to power or whoever takes office next must recognize that the Somali people are really tired of these endless divisions that hold the country back so so badly. It's hard to overstate Somali's frustration at the status quo. The internationals, as we see from the debates about the future of AMISOM, are also tired and are signaling that they can't underwrite security support perpetually. All this means that the next president will really need to fashion consensus between Mogadishu and the regions that are called federal member states. They need to chart a way forward. And just as you know, we no longer live in a world where talks between the elites and some elements of Al-Shabaab that are amenable, if this is perceived as the one way to stabilize this country, perhaps help him help it move forward. If those are still feasible, I think elites should continue exploring the possibility and should not rule them out. Of course, in this run-up to elections, we've also, you know, it's had some regional impact in as much as you've had the the row escalating between Somalia and Kenya, especially on the Somalia side, expelling the Kenyan ambassador. 
and just a general uh, deterioration in relations between Nairobi and Mogadishu. What's the impact we see this might have on the region, you know, and its overall stability, but also its overall political makeup in the year coming ahead? And also, is this just something that we think will sort of blow over after Somali elections? I think in terms of the Somalia-Kenya relationship, I th- it's basically a failure of statecraft on all sides. Kenya and Somalia are two countries that are joined at the hip, essentially. The economies are virtually integrated. I remember buying phone airtime not far from the airport in Mogadishu years ago, and in typical brilliant Somali entrepreneurial style, the lady could offer you change in dollars, in Kenya shillings, or in Somali shillings. So relations between the two countries will continue whatever happens, uh, but these g- political games, even if they are pro- performative, they are still very unhelpful. Kenya at the moment says that Farmajo is trying to have an effect of rallying around the flag, looking for an external enemy, and therefore blaming Nairobi for all his problems. Somalia in turn says that Kenya is meddling in, in Somalia's internal affairs, taking too keen an interest in the election. My guess, my best guess is that this will blow over. I think eventually some sort of arrangement will be reached. I think even with the maritime boundary dispute, some sort of deal is not beyond reach. I think this is one where both sides have just taken very hardline positions for reasons that are not based on very deep uh, foundations. So it's just, I think, it, I think this will blow over. All right, let's turn now to another major country in the region, uh, which is, of course, South Sudan. Given the fact of how South Sudan for a long time in the Horn over the past, you know, half a decade was sort of the major crisis. You know, this year, that's not really the case by any means when you look at the Horn as a whole. Uh, So, you know, we had the formation of the unity government uh, in 2020. It is crawling forward, still holds at a top level between you know, the ceasefire between President Salva Kiir and First Vice President Riyak Machar. Uh, but it does feel in some ways we're, like we're in a holding pattern. They, they've ended the war. It's not really clear the, where South Sudan is heading or where it goes from there. You know, this is something me and you have really talked quite a bit. And I think 2021, sort of looking ahead, you know, it doesn't have the look necessarily of a super formative year. So I just wonder what, what, what you're really looking for as this sort of waiting period in South Sudan to see what emerges. Just to start with the positives, the September 2018 peace deal has indeed largely held, and that's a good thing because, as you know better than most, this was such a nasty, painful, costly war. But this is a classic case where the peace deal, as it were, made things less worse, but we are stuck in a place where we don't know how to make things better. I don't think that will change very soon. As you know, at Crisis Group, we felt that the deal at the time, even though imperfect, uh, given it was a repeat power sharing formula, was preferable to continued fighting. But while it ended the worst of the bleeding and it still kept the problem in place, President Kiir and Vice President Mashar are still in position. They, of course, have cultivated no successors. They are losing support rapidly. The economy is in terrible shape, but there's no clear path forward. And generally, the future is more opaque than ever. I know this is a subject you think a lot about. It's one we've discussed quite a bit. But Crisis Group will be issuing a paper soon about ideas to unlock the stalemate and chart a way forward. But this is a really difficult one almost one where we must adopt a, adopt a wait-and-see attitude and really just a watching brief. It's at least helpful that outside actors with a lot of cachet within uh, South Sudan, particularly the Anglican Church through Lambeth Palace, 
and the Vatican are very engaged in urging the parties to forge a responsible way forward and are really trying to bring in Thomas Cirillo, the holdout rebel who did not join the initial peace deal into the tent. The key problem, however, is that, you know, as there's still a lot of dysfunction within the regional body IGAD, which is supposed to champion regional initiatives to help take this forward. At the same time, the guarantors of the peace deal, Khatoum and Kampala, are quite distracted. That is unlikely to change immediately. IGAD is likely to continue fighting to stay relevant amid so many crises across the region. And so the omens are not very good. It's a holding pattern, as you said, and we just have to wait and see whether there will be an inflection point that offers a chance for change. Yeah, and that paper you mentioned, it will be coming out soon, uh, probably next month. But for those wondering what I spend my non-podcast time on, that's that's something that's that's taken up a lot of my time. And, and we look forward to, to, to putting that out there um, into the world and, and getting everyone's feedback. Um, so, you know, you mentioned EGAD and, you know, we get asked a lot uh, as crisis group uh, overall uh, analysis and take on EGAD and whether or not it's it, it's a body that you know, we see possibly improving, or if this is, you know, about as much as we can expect from it, at least on the peace and security point, you know, for the foreseeable or at least the near future. What's your take on it? What role does EGAD have in the current post-ABI world um, with Hamdokas chair and with everything else that's, that's changed since EGAD took a much bigger role in the region? Just taking a step back and looking across the horn, we see a region in a de- suffering a degree of dysfunction we've probably not witnessed for decades. Nairobi and Addis were once the ones that would stabilize the region, were once the key powers within IGAD. They often rotated the key positions, but now their relations are very frosty, partly because they can't agree on a way forward in Somalia. Khatoum and Addis, as we mentioned at the beginning, their relations are taking a nosedive. It's a very fragile um, uh, partnership. Nairobi and Mogadishu we just spoke about. Mogadishu is now also uh, picking up fights with Djibouti, complaining Djibouti is not supportive enough. And then you have in the background the big figure of Isaias and Asmara brooding, uh, no friends of multilateralism and no friends at all of IGAD, which they see as a product uh, of the Ethiopians at a time when they were rivals. So what can IGA do in this environment? One of the wiser diplomats that I often uh, turn to for advice has mentioned that we have to be careful as analysts to also understand that things have evolved uh, within the, the broader global context. We are often dealing with, with traditional analytical tools, but tackling actors that no longer have the old inhibitions, that believe they can achieve what they want, sometimes by force of arms, and traditional analysis may be too anachronistic. I think IGAD has come under a lot of criticism, the African Union as well, Uh, But in truth, multilateral organizations very rarely engage when crises involve the bigger member states within their groups. So it's not a surprise that IGAD has not been very effective in tackling some of the bigger crises. If I was sitting within IGAD, I would probably pare down my ambition until such a time as you can build confidence and maybe be able to engage on bigger issues. You'll recall that the foundations of IGAD were supposed to stimulate uh, and uh, cooperation on some of the things that people don't really differ a lot about climate change, desertification, things that 
various partners can easily work together very very important potential triggers of conflict down the line i would probably go back to those basics try and stimulate cooperation on on frontier management on border management on um on cooperation on issues such as you know tackling the locust infestation which is very serious and is one that you can uh, stimulate cooperation but i wouldn't really wade into this big power competition within the region because then that might render them irrelevant if some of the powers decide to sideline igad completely i think next i would say that if igad did not exist as some have pointed out you might need to invent it you need such a forum for example to engage with in a united way with some of the gulf actors that prefer to deal bilaterally you need such a forum to coordinate during uh, pandemics uh, as 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 the covid pandemic but overall i think the crit- criticism of the organization is also valid it has often been seen as lethargic as slow very wound up in its own bureaucracy and that needs to be uh, sharpened through better management but overall i would say it's still an organization that's necessary in the region so a country we haven't talked about much on this podcast but uh, is especially timely right now um, is of course uganda and the elections that are very imminent there Um you know what are we looking for obviously president Yoweri Museveni has been in power a very long time but this challenge from Bobby Wine is an especially serious one and and it's right on the heels of you know what were disappointing i would say uh election you know to put it mildly in in Tanzania and so you know there are concerns about if the election is is not free and fair about a broader trend of this across the region. So so what are we really watching for uh this month looking ahead to those elections in Uganda? Frankly, I think Museveni is toast. He has lost credibility with his nation's youth. For many years his credibility was premised on the claim that he rescued Uganda from the horrors of dictatorship. But the youth don't recall those years. Most of them were born after he took power, and in fact for them the only dictator they know is president museveni you have a situation where the economy he presides over is unable completely to absorb masses of the urban poor that join um the 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 job market every year in what is one of the youngest countries in the world you can see something fundamentally has changed because the regime is killing people in the dozens in a way museveni didn't feel he needed to in the past i don't think the election will be fair museveni is likely to find a way to retain power and then to take on the street quite brutally but whatever happens Bobby Wine the opposition leader you mentioned has rendered a notable service he has shown that Museveni's time is up this will certainly be Museveni's last mandate he won't be able to manage the succession as he would have wished and that's still progress in a context where progress can only come incrementally if you're being realistic i should also mention uh Tanzania which which you flagged Tundu Lisu the opposition leader survived an assassination attempt hail a hail of bullets was aimed at his car you know he he's still recuperating but he's still brave enough to come back to the country to galvanize uh, support to the to the extent that he forced the ruling party to panic so much they rigged the election in a way that lost them a lot of domestic and international credibility so even when this opposition leaders challenge the incumbent and don't win i think they perform a very important service because change comes in stages and i think 
the region certainly owes a debt uh, to both Bobby Wine and, and Tundulisu, although, of course, it's very hard to tell what the outcome of the election in Uganda will be. But I've been to Ugandan elections in the past. They are often very farcical. I was in Kampala last uh, last election and polling stations, for example, would open as late as 4, 5 p.m. in Kampala, which is an opposition stronghold. That will probably not change, but still the fundamental point has been made that the street is unhappy, the youth are fed up, and Museveni's time is up. All right, so our time is also up. A, a sort of broader question here um, on, on the horn, which is, you know, I'm, I'm basically throwing this to you if there's anything else, broader trends or dynamics that, you know, you think are affecting the, the sort of the region more broadly and that we need to really be watching out for. Of course, COVID-19 has caused, a, you know, massive economic challenges in all these countries, even as they're facing all these political risks. You have a new U.S. administration that's coming into power in Washington. That might have a major impact. What else besides all these country-specific issues are, are you also watching for in the region in the year ahead and that you think would be you know especially important to to highlight? I think one we have not mentioned is the question of debt and economic management. Debt is certainly the elephant in the room. If you look at the history of the region, in the 80s and 90s, governments used to really dread the moment when they might not able to pay the wage bill, when the civil servants might go without pay, when the police and the army especially begin to riot because they are not being paid. And that's how governments often collapsed. Now, it's astonishing that countries within the region have amassed so much debt, both commercially issued debt and bilateral, multilateral debt, that some of them, like Kenya, debt has overtaken the wage bill. This is very concerning. 55% of the revenue in places like Kenya now goes towards debt, debt repayment. Ethiopia, Sudan, Djibouti are also suffering very substantial stress on this front. When you pay so much of your revenue into tackling your debt, inevitably that means you reduce the amount of services you're offering. You mentioned the COVID crisis. That will inevitably have a very serious blowback in terms of the economies. It's already feeding substantial anti-incumbent sentiment in many of the countries within the region. I think this is one to watch. I would actually predict that within the next decade, one or two governments within the continent might collapse simply because they've amassed so much debt, the economies are not growing enough to settle this, and they had no plan to make sure that the debt which they were absorbing was invested in the economy in a way that it yields employment and services and keeps the street happy. The Biden administration will certainly be one to watch. Of course, we are recording this a day after we saw very dramatic scenes in the U.S. I think, of course, just to mention, the administration will be very domestically focused. It will have a lot on its plate. But within the region, I expect that they might at least invest in a more coherent way, in a more coordinated fashion. There are rumors that a horn envoy might be appointed, which would be very welcome. One would hope they can swiftly fill the vacancy, for example, in the U.S. ambassadorship in places like Khartoum. One would hope they can take a more even-handed approach to the Nile dispute, which again we've not mentioned given how much is going on. Uh, but most importantly, perhaps symbolically, it might reverse the current trend where authoritarians feel emboldened and fear no challenge. All right, and we'll wrap it up at that. Uh, thanks for another year of a 
broad tour, even tour de force of the of the region, Marithi. And um, yeah, and we hope that uh, next year we will be able to do the same. Happy New Year and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Alan. Good luck with the podcast. A must listen. It's growing by leaps and bounds and good luck in the new year as well. Thanks for listening to The Horn. If you want to find out more about Crisis Group or read our reports, head to our website, crisisgroup.org. You can find me on Twitter at Alan Boswell and Marithi at Mutiga M. Our producer is Mae Francis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>